on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we're going to turn up Buzz's volume so he can say that again. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. There we go. I really am. <laughs> there we go. Oh, the show is just going swimmingly so far. Wouldn't you agree, Buzz? <laughs> it's early. It is. Well, sort of. Listen, uh, we have a bit of a fish wrap for you because yesterday the Supreme Court made some very significant uh, decisions, and I think that we should, well, comment on them. Top, pay, top of the fold in the New York Times and I think in the media outlets across the country today Court rules state control of U.S. voting has limits. Well, that's not very enlightening. The subhead is a bit more uh, uh, informative. Legal theory that the power over elections lies only in the legislatures is rejected. That is accurate. Let me read a sentence or two from Adam Liptax. He is the legal correspondent, the Supreme Court correspondent, uh, reporter for the New York Times. Dateline Washington, the Supreme Court on Tuesday rejected a legal theory that would have radically reshaped how federal elections are conducted. That radical legal theory, proposed and seemingly endorsed previously by four Supreme Court justices, uh, would have allowed legislatures unchecked power to set rules for federal elections. That means that the legislatures not only could gerrymander to their heart's content, but that the state courts could do absolutely nothing about it. And this election laws could have allowed, if it's fully in the purview, within the purview of the state legislature, this theory that was proposed would have allowed the state legislatures to cast their electoral votes for whoever the legislature wanted to have the electoral votes, regardless Regard, of right, how exactly. the popular vote came out. Quite extraordinary. Really, four justices indicate that would be just fine if Donald Trump's MAGA Republicans in North Carolina wanted to cast the electoral votes for Donald Trump, even though he lost, that would be just fine. That's well, that's what, exactly what happened. There were electors named that weren't the true electors. There were Trump electors named in various states, and that was what was at issue in 2020. It's really frightening. I, it's kind of confusing um, for people. This, and it, it's, I think it's made a little bit clearer by this opinion. The Constitution itself says, quote, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. The same, there's another clause right next to it that says the time, place, and manners of holding elections. And this is talking about senators, representatives, um, shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. And that's what was at issue with this independent state legislature doctrine, whether or not the Constitution conferred on legislatures unbridled power, which means courts can't second-guess them because of the separation of powers, to determine who the electors are and who they're going to vote for. And that's what the Supreme Court said yesterday, six to three, no, no, no. Right. And the Supreme Court, it was interesting, the decision was written by Chief Justice Roberts, which I think gives the opinion and the conclusion from the by the court uh, more heft than it otherwise would. And the Chief Justice, when he's in the majority, gets to assign who, who writes the opinion, and he assigned himself to write this opinion, obviously. This independent state legislature theory is per, pernicious. It was dreamt up by a right-wing think tank. And it really came very close to undermining 
democracy as we know it. Six to three, the Supreme Court said, no, we are not adopting this independent state legislature theory, but we really, we as a country, dodged a bullet yesterday with this Supreme Court decision. It also, by the way, um, leaves open, it doesn't doesn't, uh, uh, forever foreclose the possibility of uh, some electoral shenanigans, but it goes a long way towards protecting the integrity of elections. The the other thing I wanted to point out, and of, of great interest to you and Josh Silver, who's been talking about this for a very long time, political consultant and a frequent uh, guest on this show, uh, Josh Silver, is this all arose in 2015 when Arizona decided to do an independent uh, redistricting commission so that the legislature wasn't politically deciding exactly what the districts would look like. Um, and that's what was at issue here, whether or not legislatures can circumvent inter- independent uh, redistricting commissions. Well, and- whether they can set up, can, whether can, an independent legislature created, uh, sorry, an independent uh, committee set up by the legislature could actually make this decision, that, or whether that was an improper delegation of authority from the legislature. Uh, and whether or not nonpartisan independent committees or commissions could, in fact, draw district lines. That was, the, that was the issue. Yeah. And for a lot of us, that is the solution to these legislative efforts to uh, gerrymand districts so that they can never lose. Well, let's look at the irony of yesterday's decision, if we might. In North Carolina, this is an evenly divided state between Republicans and Democrats. It has some 14 uh, congressional districts. And you would think that given that, that the way the lines would be drawn, you would have seven presumptively Republican districts and seven presumptively Democratic districts. But after this decision, and we should note that the decision was uh, by the North Carolina Supreme Court, it said that the, what the legislature did in drawing a district that was over districts that were overwhelmingly Republican, like 10 to 4 or 11 to 3, uh, that was a violation of the state constitution. And the legislature said, no, courts, you can't do that. We're the only body of government that can draw the lines. Courts, you have nothing to say. Relying on that clause that I read earlier. And what the Supreme Court said, no, that's not right. State courts have the right to interpret state law. And so... The the state constitution. And the state constitution. And so the Supreme Court said yesterday that was a perfectly fine decision by the North Carolina court. However, since then... The voters who elect the justices of the North Carolina court voted in an overwhelmingly Republican Supreme Court who has now said that redrawn lines, the 10 to 4 or 11 to 3, is just fine. And the Supreme Court has previously said that the federal courts will do nothing about partisan gerrymandering. And so North Carolina is, in fact, at this moment, a highly gerrymandered state in which the people, in fact, will not choose their electors their elected representatives, rather the elected representatives in Congress, have chosen their voters. That's the irony of this decision, I think. I just I just want to append to a conversation. A lot of people, I got two calls yesterday asking me to distinguish between this case and the one involving Alabama, which was the Supreme Court found to be a violation of Section 2 of voting rights. And that, Bruce Miller, Professor Miller, was here explaining uh, the packing and cracking a uh, situation where you can pack a district with what with uh, so you have one black district and then uh, pepper 
um, minority population among all the other districts so that they are in a minority. And in that case, the court sort of uh, once again brought to life the power of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which would prohibit that. So this, while it's distinguishable in terms of what was in fact at issue, it, it both are really important uh, redistricting opinions that uh, breathe life, resuscitate democracy. Well, yeah, except when the state Supreme Courts, which will now have authority, of course, to rule over what the legislature did, are of the same political party overwhelmingly as the state legislature. And so when the Republicans in North Carolina gerrymander the, the uh, congressional maps and the state court, Supreme Court, says that's just fine, that's how it's going to be. Yeah, I know. I'm not saying effectively we're in a bliss situation. What I'm saying is the Supreme Court has has breathed some life oh, back yes. into democracy. Oh, yeah. It was a good day for democracy because if the case had come out the other way, it would have been a disaster. The end of democracy. The end of elections as we know them, as we want them. We'll be right back. Let there be light as the hawk cripples the dove. Over and over, watch the dove die as they rip out the floorboards above. Let there be gossip, let it be cruel. I'll still be home before dark. I've been through the ring. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. Go electric during the 4th of July sales event at Leah Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram. New 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe. Get up to $15,000 off MSRP with tax credits and rebates. And we'll pay you an unheard of amount for your trade. Visit General Manager Nick Kane to save thousands. Now at Leah Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram on King Street in Northampton. Leah. Customer 230202. 15000 off with a lease. Includes 7500 tax credit, 4000 manufacturer rebate, and 3500 Leah discount. Offer ends 7523. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 
1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the studio Andrew Lawrence, who is the founder and director of Shoral Camp New England. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Am I, am I close? You're doing great. A lot of people in this country say Shoru. I say Shoru. Oh, say that again. That's good. Shoru. Okay, so Shoru. What is it? Shoru is a musical style that began to develop. It's a, it's a Brazilian musical style that began to develop in uh, Rio de Janeiro in the middle of the 19th century, and it continues to develop now. It's a mixture of European influences and Afro-Brazilian influences. So tell us, if you would, please, Andrew Lawrence, what is Shoro Camp New England? And Shoro Camp New England is a place where North Americans and people from anywhere can learn to play this music because it, we're trying to uh, take over the United States of America with Shoro. <laughs> Okay, well, the people in the studio for sure think that's a pretty good idea. You want to tell us who we have? We have uh, four musicians with you and us today. Want to tell us who they are? Yeah, they call themselves Quartetu Urubatan. They are all visiting us from uh, Rio de Janeiro. We have Almir Cochis on bandolin, which is like our mandolin. Yuri Bita on guitar, which is like our guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Pedro Cantalisi on cavaquinho which is kind of like a steel-stringed ukulele, and Clarice Magalhães playing pandeiro, which to a North American would look like a tambourine, but wait until you hear what she does with it. Okay, so tell us a bit more about Shoro Camp New England. It's at Smith College. Tell us uh, for how long it goes on, who's there, and the like, and then I assume we're going to get to hear a concert, at least I hope so. We are indeed. So we are in the middle of our week. These folks have been here since Monday. They will be here until Sunday morning. And we have about 60 people up on the Smith campus right now playing all of these different instruments and learning how to play this particular style of music. On Saturday night, we will be at the Northampton Center for the Arts on Holly, Holly Street. And these musicians, plus four others, will be giving a concert, and you don't want to miss it. So, in terms of the camp itself, Shoro Camp New England, are these uh, musicians by invitation? How do these folks from uh, Brazil and, I guess, from a number of other countries and a number of states across the United States, how are, do they happen to be here? Well, these, these are folks that I invited to come up from Rio. We actually met together. When was that? December or something like that. November. November. We, we, we met. So this has been in the planning for a long time. So these four music, uh, there's actually five musicians who came up from Brazil for this. And then there's three or four other Brazilian musicians who are here who happen to live in the New York area. And one a really fine musician from Israel. Her name is Anat Cohen, and many people know her as a, as a, as a clarinetist. This is the Brazilian-Israeli connection? This, the Brazilian-Israeli connection, exactly. Okay, and the other 60 or so people, 50 or 60 people, these are students, they sign up, they have the opportunity to uh, join with these extraordinary teachers? To study with them, yes. And our, the, the, the participant who has come the long dis- longest distance is from Australia, so try to beat that. <laughs> no, I think we can't beat that. We're going to give that prize to the Australian. I, I would like to know a bit about how we find and purchase tickets for the concert on Saturday night? Yes. 
Saturday night. We're producing this concert, so the best way to get tickets is through the Shotocamp website, which is shotocamp.com, and just follow the links for concert. Shoto is spelled C-H-O-R-O, so it's shotocamp.com. We're going to ask the musicians to play a song for us, a couple songs, in just a moment. But I would like to know from you, Andrew Lawrence, how did you become involved in this? What was your inspiration? What, what captivated you? I got really interested in Shoru as I got interested in Brazilian music in general. So there's so Brazil is incredibly rich and deep in terms of its various musical traditions and all sorts of cultural traditions. I think this I got interested in producing this particular event because I think this music is offers a wonderful comp- combination of something that is easy for us to understand and to enjoy immediately, and yet, as you're about to hear, there's something uniquely Brazilian about it. So it's a wonderful mix of the familiar and the unfamiliar, the virtuosic and the accessible. And the choral, uh, does the music always involve uh, uh, lyrics, or is it sometimes just instrumental? Tell us about that. It is most commonly instrumental, and that's another reason why I thought this event might be good for North Americans, because you don't have to speak Portuguese to, to, to play most of the repertoire, which is helpful for us. So could you tell us, we're going to have uh, these four musicians, maybe you could introduce them uh, again, please, uh, are going to play a song. Can you tell us what they're going to play? Maybe Almir can tell us. Almir, que vai tocar? Hello, everybody. We have to be here, and we gonna play Urubatan for you, and that's the tune that gives the, gives name to our group. Uh, it was written by Pichinguinha. That's a hard name for you guys to pronounce. I no, know. Say, it, say it again. I mangle names, English names, all the time. So I want to have a chance at this one. Pichinguinha. Not a chance. Pichinguinha no, <laughs> <laughs> is one of is is the master composer we have. It's sort of the Brazilian Duke Ellington or something similar to that. So, Urubata. So, the instrument you're playing is what? It's a mandolin, Brazilian version of the mandolin, and that this one has 10 strings, an extra pair. A 10-string mandolin. Wow. Yeah. And how long have you been playing it? Um, long time. I lost my count. Okay. And, <laughs> and is, that the ins- is that the instrument you began your musical No, play? I began playing more guitar at home with my uncles and friends. Yeah. And is, do you come from a musical family? Yeah, nobody was professional, but there was music all the time at home, like records, and my 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 family liked to to sing and play guitar at home. And you say that you started on the guitar. Are there other instruments that you play? Or are, you, or are they all string instruments? Yeah, string instruments, more more fretted instruments like the uh, the viola. It's an instrument we have in Brazil with doubled strings also, and guitar. Okay, so tell us about this song. Uh, you can tell us the composer's name again. I really want to hear that. <laughs> but tell, tell us what the song is. And is it representative of Chorro music? Yes, for sure. Uh, it's Pichinguinha. And the tune is one of uh, its most pecu- peculiar tunes because <clears throat> it brings um, Afro-Brazilian culture and at the same time indigenous culture all mixed in this tune. And the name Urubatan is also uh, Urubatan. Urubatan. Urubatan is also an entity in some Afro and indigenous religions in Brazil. Oh, okay. And the, and the song's title is? Urubatan. Urubatan. The same as our group. 
Okay. Ah, okay. That's why we got this. Okay, okay. So, so I'm entitled to be confused for a change as opposed to just being confused on my own. I appreciate that a lot. Okay, you're going to hear, we're going to play? You're going to play? Yeah. Great. <laughs> We'll be performing at the at 33 Holly Street this Saturday. Uh, Andrew Lawrence, founder and director of Choro Camp New England, tell us again how people can purchase their tickets, please. 
The best way to get them is to go to shorucamp.com. Shoru is spelled C-H-O-R-O, shorucamp.com, and follow the link for concert. And the concert will be what time? 7.30, Saturday, July 1st, at the Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly Street. We'll be back with more with Quarteto Urubatan right after this. Quando tiver E os meus olhos ficam sorrindo E pelas ruas vão te seguindo Mas mesmo assim Foges de mim You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A new interim superintendent of schools in East Hampton is on board. Maureen Binienda accepted the job and will begin this week after signing a one-year deal for $157,000. The hiring comes after several controversial months following the withdrawal of an offer to Vito Perone and the withdrawal of Erica Viginsky-Stark over alleged anti-trans social media posts. The search for a permanent superintendent will begin again before the end of the year. Cal's Building Supply and a solar development company called Amp Energy are suing the town of Shutesbury for the right to build a large-scale solar array, exempted from the town's bylaws regulating such developments. Sharon Weisenbaum, a member of the citizens' advocacy group Smart Solar Shutesbury, spoke out in an informational meeting. But don't we need large-scale solar development to reach state climate goals? We do need solar but we need it cited in appropriate places. Sacrificing forest lands for solar is absolutely inappropriate. The activist group is primarily concerned with the clear-cutting of forests and how it would affect the town's water supply, as well as the threat of other environmental impacts like chemical leaching. The state fire marshal is investigating the cause of a fire that left several people homeless. The fire began at a multifamily home on Phillips Avenue in Westfield around 3 p.m. yesterday. When crews arrived, the home, which accommodated four families, was fully engulfed in flames. All occupants of the home managed to exit safely and without any injuries. Mixture of sun and clouds today, warm, humid, a high of 78 to 82. Be ready for scattered afternoon thunderstorms. Chance for a shower this evening as well, then partial clearing and patchy fog overnight, a low of 58 to 64. And for tomorrow, sun cloud mix, chance of showers in the afternoon, a high of 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Corte Suprema se está preparando para decidir algunos de sus casos más importantes del periodo. Al Tribunal Superior le quedan 10 opiniones para publicar durante la próxima semana antes de que los jueces comiencen sus vacaciones de verano. Como es típico, las últimas opiniones que se publicarán cubren algunos de los temas más polémicos que la Corte ha enfrentado con este término, incluida la acción afirmativa, los préstamos estudiantiles y los derechos de los homosexuales. La supervivencia de la acción afirmativa en la educación superior es el tema de dos casos relacionados, uno que involucra a Harvard y el otro a la Universidad de Carolina del Norte. La administración de Biden ha dicho que deshacerse de las admisiones universitarias conscientes de la raza tendría un efecto desestabilizador que haría que las filas de estudiantes negros y latinos cayeran en picado en las escuelas más selectivas del país. Los jueces también decidirán el destino del plan del presidente Joe Biden para eliminar o reducir los préstamos estudiantiles de millones de estadounidenses.
estadounidenses. Cuando el tribunal escuchó los argumentos del caso en febrero, no parecía probable que el plan sobreviviera, aunque es posible que los jueces decidan que los demandantes no tenían derecho a demandar y que el plan aún puede seguir adelante. Los pagos de préstamos que han sido suspendidos desde el comienzo de la pandemia de coronavirus hace tres años se reanudarán este verano. Por otra parte, el tribunal aún no ha decidido un choque entre los derechos de los homosexuales y los derechos religiosos. Y a medida que se acelera la temporada de elecciones, la Corte Suprema aún no ha dicho qué hará en un caso sobre el poder de las legislaturas estatales para dictar reglas para las elecciones presidenciales y del Congreso sin ser revisado por los tribunales estatales. Yo soy Johan Vega. Y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are in the studio with Cuarteto Urubatán, who will be performing at 33 Holy Street at the Center for the Arts this Saturday night at 7.30 This is choral music from Brazil, and Dan Torres, our producer, uh, is from Brazil, and right, Bill. he's had a smile on his face since we walked in this morning. And We're invading America, Bill. Uh, okay. That's so what I heard. I'd like to know what this music means to you. <laughs> well, it's really nice music. I actually enjoy it a lot, so um, I've, I've known it uh, for a long time. I mean, you kind of learn the different uh, music genres, and this one's really special, and uh, yeah, it's very popular. So I'm not surprised it's in America and come in. And, and here in Northampton, out of all places, so. Well, we... we, we can you say Pichiguina? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> come on, Bill. Am, am I, Yiddish, am I, you know Yiddish. You can figure this out, Bill. Come on. Smith. Smith. Come on, Bill. You could do it. I, I believe in you, Bill. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the comment. You're welcome. However misplaced it might be. It is misplaced. Uh, it is, indeed. So let me turn, if I might, to Yuri Bitar, who is the guitarist with the group, uh, Cuarteto Urubatán. And I'd like to know a bit more about choral music. Uh, is, is there improvisation that you're doing here? Are they set uh, tunes? Tell us about that. Um, firstly, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's very nice to be here. Shoru, uh, it's like a mixture of improvisation and some established stuff already. So the, the melodies that we are playing, like in this tune, Urubatan, it's a, it's a composition from Pixinguinha. Bill, can you say Pixinguinha, Bill? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's, so it's an it's a, a, a established melody that we sometimes do some seasonings on, on it. And the shorter structure is made of three big sections. And sometimes we take one session and do like a, an improvisation in the whole section, like something similar to, to jazz music. And so you're playing against each other? In other words, one of the other musicians will play something and then you'll respond to it? It's that kind of back and forth? Yeah, it's a communication, like uh, the whole time you are communicating with each other, dialoguing, and that's, what's, that's what makes shows so funny and so uh, music so pleasant to hear. I'd like to know, maybe we could uh, uh, go to uh, Clarice and ask you this question. Are the instruments for Shoro, are they set? Is there a usual, are there usual instruments or do they vary from group to group? They vary, but um, the percussion is always um, 
Pandeiro is the main. Uh, if, if we have to to have a, a percussion instrument, and it's pandeiro always. And the bandero is that. Uh, oh, this is yours. Oh, can you play it for us just uh, uh, by yourself so we can hear what it what it, what it sounds like? So you're an entire percussion yeah. se section yeah. with that. Uh, it looks looks pre looks pretty simple, but it's wow! You, what you get out of it? <laughs> we 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 call it Brazilian pandeiro, uh, Brazilian tambourine. So we we have the skin, we have the jingles, and we we have middle notes. So it's a, a much uh, complete instrument for a one piece. I think it's the most complete. Uh, whole the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> and it all this music depends on you setting setting the beat and yeah yeah bandeiro uh, we have all the 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 patterns and but we we talk a lot we dialogue a lot with uh, all the instruments they they are listening to the bandeiro everybody's listening to to each other and the pandero is uh, about the rhythm. So I'd like to ask a question of Pedro, if I might, and Almir, maybe you could translate for us. Tell us about the instrument you're playing and how long you've played it. Can you translate into the microphone? Oh, sorry. Pedro is asking you about the instrument you play and how long you've played it. Okay. The is an instrument originally from Portugal, but in Brazil ganhou um formato original e uma história também. Então, so, Cavaquinho okay. came from Portugal, but in Brazil it, it has a different story. It, it was transformed, changed. E hoje em dia é conhecido como Cavaquinho brasileiro. É, é importante na cultura do samba, do choro e de muitas outras culturas populares brasileiras. Now, this is well known as Brazilian Cavaquinho. Brazilian what? Cavaquinho. O cavaco, o cavaquinho, is the most popular popular name of this instrument, and uh, it's very important in the culture and practice of samba and choro, especially. And it has similarities to a to a uh, uh, ukulele. Tem similarity. É parecido com o ukulele, mas a afinação é diferente. É mais o formato do instrumento, porque eles têm uma uma um antepassado é, idêntico, né? Eles surgiram do mesmo do mesmo instrumento. Yeah, they they have the same root, they came from the same instrument, but they are, they are very different. All the shape is alike, but uh, the steel strings you have here and the tuning is different, and the way you you pick you strum it is also different. Well, I know that you all have to get back to Shore Camp, New England, uh, at Smith College, where you are teaching and playing this week. But I would really love it if you'd play another song for us before you go. Can you do that? Sure. What are you going to play? We're going to play, play Brejero. Uh, it's a tune by Ernesto Nazaré, one, another very important composer. Okay. Thank you so much.
Tato Urubatan will be performing at 33 Holly Street, the Northampton Center for the Arts, 7.30 Saturday evening. Tickets available at Andrew Lawrence? Shorocamp.com. C-H-O-R-O-Camp.com. All one word? All one word. Okay. Almir, Uri, Pedro, uh, Clarice, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much for your music. Thank you for what you bring to us. We really appreciate it. We'll see you Saturday night. See you guys. See you then. Take good care. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside. Get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads. For the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. Having a hard time with your mental health or substance use? You have options. The 24-7 Behavioral Health Helpline is your front door to care. Call 833-773-2445 to speak with a trained staff member and get connected to the support you need. Want to see someone right away? Visit mass.gov slash cbhcs to find your local community behavioral health center, a service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to the show Jennifer Ackerman. She is a writer of science and nature and has been for some three decades. She has a number of books, including New York, New York Times bestsellers. She's written for the National Geographic and the New York Times Magazine and Scientific America. And she has a new book that we want you to know about, What an Owl Knows. The New Science of the World's Most Enigmatic Birds, What an Owl Knows. Well, I would love to ask you about a piece of your book, uh, Jennifer Ackerman, that is at the beginning, and it says something, I think, really interesting about owls, 
uh, and what we think about owls, which is part of this book as well. And it says this, and it's a quote. If anyone knows anything about anything, says Winnie the Pooh, it's Owl, who knows something about something. Owls have truths to tell us from afar, from their perches and nests deep in old-growth forests, deserts, the Arctic, and from up close in the hands of vets, rehabbers, researchers, and educators, we would be wise to listen. What do owls, in your judgment, as a researcher, as a scientist, as a naturalist, what do owls have to teach us? What a great, great question. Uh, you know, in my research, I kept finding examples of how owls are actually far more intelligent than we ever imagined. They're, they're subtle and complicated, and they have different learning styles than we do and different forms of intelligence, which I think actually can, we can learn from. Um, they are they really know how to be invisible, how to be subtle, how to disappear uh, through camouflage and quiet flight. They have the ability to spot their prey in the pitch black and how to recognize one another by voice alone um, and also how to learn from one another. They, um, there's a, a species of owl called the long-eared owl that um, actually roosts in these enormous colonies in um, the villages of Serbia. These are hundreds of owls roosting together and they create what's called an information sharing center. And so they, they, uh, they learn from each other about good hunting spots and what's dangerous and what's not. Could you stop there so, for one second? You're, you're yeah. telling us that owls sort of have owl schools where they go and teach each other? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it's not exactly a school, but it is a colony. And they, there are other examples of this in the bird world with ravens and cliff swallows. They, they gather in these places, and they, they really do swap information about what's a good hunting spot and, uh, you know, and, and is this something to be worried about, this, uh, this Eurasian eagle owl flying in or that barking dog. Or, and they do. They learn from, from one another. And this is something that we didn't know about owls. We, you know, we thought their behavior was largely hardwired, but it turns out they actually do learn throughout their lives. Now, in your book, you say this, referring to another researcher, no other birds use vision and hearing in such a highly coordinated way to detect and catch prey items. They coordinate yes. their hearing and their vision. Explain that, if you would, please. Yes, it's, it's um, fascinating. First of all, owls have very extraordinary vision in dim light. They have very big eyes. You know, if our eyes were the same size as theirs in relation to the body, the, our eyes would be about the size of an orange, you know, and they'd weigh four pounds. So very, very big eyes, very acute hearing. Their, their hearing is called the, uh, the kind of Ferrari, the race car of auditory sensitivity in the animal world. Uh, which allows them really to, to, to pick up all kinds of sounds. And, yes, their eyes and their ears work together. And one of the very fascinating ex experiments that actually showed this um, uh, and shed light on how babies hear was an experiment uh, that was looking at owl hearing. And, and the scientists noticed that the owl, when it would hear a sound, its pupils would enlarge. And so this was a way that, that the, the, the bird was actually coordinating hearing and vision. And um, what we've, we've always had difficulty um, testing hearing in babies. 
Well, it turns out babies' pupils also respond to uh, uh, to sounds. So their little pupils enlarge. And, you know, you can't ask a baby, do you hear this? Do you not hear this? Uh, yeah, particularly baby owls. Their, their, language, their language skills, particularly in English, <laughs> is, re- is really uh, questionable. Uh, who cooks for you, baby? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about human babies. So that's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a uh, really, really interesting um, and, you know, they're, 75% of their brain is dedicated to hearing and vision. It's so important for, their, um, for them to be able to pinpoint their prey. So, Jennifer Ackerman, if you would be kind enough, you have an, a, a reference in, 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 your, in your book, and again, the uh, book is, is, is titled What an Owl Knows, the New Science of the World's Most Enigmatic Birds, and the author is Jennifer Ackerman, our guest. You have a part in the book where you say, and you reference uh, bird brains, a uh, 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 not complimentary kind of uh, reference, as if bird brains are small, but in fact, they are not relative to their body weight, which has a lot to do with what their overall intelligence is. And perhaps you could explain a bit of that for us. Yes. Well, you know, we always used to think that uh, we called people bird brains. You know, they were they had small brains. And it, you know, it turns out that size is really not the um, the sole or even the main indicator of intelligence. What really matters in the intelligent brain is the density of neurons. And it turns out that birds have very um, dense neurons in their small brains. So their their brains may be small overall, as you mentioned, they're they're actually big in in terms of their relative body size. But the more important thing is that they're just very dense with neurons. And um, so they're, they're, they're very efficient and compact and capable of quite sophisticated mental abilities. Now, you write this. The hoot of an owl is one of the few bird calls most people know, but a hoot is not just a hoot. Tell us about hoots, if you would, please. This is one of the really delightful surprises I learned in my research. Owls have these very elaborate vocal repertoires that are actually just teeming with meaning. You know, they have, they have greeting hoots and territorial hoots and emphatic hoots. And they also, they chitter, squawk and squeal and all these different calls. They communicate highly specific information about the size of an owl, its uh, sex, its weight, its individual identity and its um, state of mind. I would like to know two things. I mean, there, this book is just so, so fascinating and so interesting and has so much information that I just did not know. I'd like to know about the mating of owls, and I'd like to know whether they migrate, and I'd like to know whether they stay together. Tell, tell us more about their social relationships. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> um, they do uh, They do uh, have very, very interesting mating patterns and courtship patterns. This was one of the things that, uh, that I found most interesting with some, some of the courtship rituals of owls, like the short-eared owl has what, does what's called a sky dance to attract a mate. Does a what? It goes way up a sky dance. I thought that's what you said. So, yeah, it goes way up in the air, and then it drops suddenly, and it claps its wings beneath it like it's kind of applauding its own performance. It's really an extraordinary thing to watch. And so the female's on the ground, and she's watching the male do these, uh, these, um, thing, these wonderful acrobatics in the sky. And then there are owls that um, court by 
tooting by, you know, hooting and tooting. And, you know, at a really extraordinary rate, the northern sawwit owl is a little tiny owl. It will toot at 160 times a minute when it's trying to attract a female. So very interesting courtship rituals. And then the question of whether those pairs that actually are drawn together stay together is, is very interesting. We used to think that, um, that owls were monogamous, that they, the pairs stayed together for life. But the interesting new research on individual voices in owls, it turns out owls have voices as distinct as fingerprints. And this has allowed scientists, um, first of all, to count owls more accurately, but also to get a window on their social lives and see who's mating with whom and who's staying with whom. And it turns out that there's actually a lot of of mate switching going on in, in the owl world, which we, we never knew. So wait a second. Is, um, owls are essentially monogamous, but they mess around. Is that what you're telling us? Well, no, they change partners. They're polyamorous. Um, this, this was, <laughs> yeah. They're polyamorous. Okay, there you got, go. it. got it. <laughs> that's what we learned. <laughs> right, that's, that's what an owl knows. Can you just I want to ask Jennifer Ackerman. Uh, this is Buzz. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting Dan. But um, it, for songbirds in this region, usually the springtime is when they mate. When do owls mate in this area? And are, and are they migrating back from somewhere? Uh, or have they been here? A, an interesting this is an interesting question. So, yeah, you all are in Western Mass, and um, your owls are probably um, uh, pretty much done with their their um, uh, nesting season, although it varies very much from species to species. And, you know, we used to think that owls were um, sedentary largely. Now it turns out we understand they that many species actually migrate. And um, one of the it turns out to be the most common raptor in North America. One of the most common raptors is the northern sawit owl, which you all have in, in your woods. Uh, very hard to see this bird, but it is migrate. It migrates south um, uh, from and and actually migrates around just looking for food sources. And uh, so some some owls are are uh, migrating and 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 then settling, and other owls are are roosting, overwintering in a in a place. So, you know, you probably have oh at least a half a dozen owl species there, and they're all on their own schedules. We think of owls as old and wise. We just have thirty seconds left, but I'd love to know: Do our owls, in addition to being wise, are they old? Do they live a long time? Yeah, this is one of the great mysteries still. We do know that uh, short owls, ha uh, small owls have shorter lives and big owls have longer lives, but we really don't know the details yet. There are, um, you know, we have some evidence of, of, of lives as long as 25 years in bigger owl species in the wild, but this is one of the areas that we still have a lot to learn from. Mm -hmm. We've been speaking with Jennifer Ackerman. Her new book is What an Owl Knows, The New Science of the World's Most Enigmatic Birds. It's a fascinating read. Who? <laughs> oh, God, I thought we'd get through the show without that, <laughs> but we didn't. Jennifer Ackerman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the book, which is available at your local independent bookstore. Buy it there. Thank you so much for the book, and thank you again for being with us today.
Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable home ownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. PVHabitat.org. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Cancellations and delays at U.S. airports top 2,000 so far, and the day is young. A days-long travel nightmare threatens to get even worse as we head into the July 4th holiday. Harry Brooks is stranded at the airport in Philly. I'm here waiting, gave up my rental car, have no hotel, hoping to fly home. Correspondent Chris Van Cleve checks in from Phoenix. Flights are very full, and the TSA is saying Friday could be an all-time record at checkpoints. They expect it to be a very, very busy 4th of July holiday period. Part of the problem, severe storms and steamy weather that continues to stifle the South. CBS meteorologist David Parkinson. In terms of your record high temperatures today, we're going to be seeing 97 or 98 in New Orleans. You add a feels-like temperature and we are in the one-teens there. People in the Midwest dealing with a new wave of smoke from Canadian wildfires. Detroit, Chicago and Minneapolis are in the top five cities with the world's worst air quality today. All five Mississippi sheriff deputies accused of beating and sexually assaulting two black men before shooting one in the mouth have been fired. Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey. We've already taken actions to ensure that we serve and protect the public while making sure the rights of all citizens are protected. These actions include a detailed analysis of our policies, procedures, and training of all department personnel. Washington has stopped looking into high cancer rates in one southern state. Here's CBS's Jim Crisula. The Biden administration has dropped investigations into whether Louisiana officials put black residents living in an industrial stretch of the state at increased risk of cancer. They said in a court filing that a resolution with the state is not feasible by a July deadline. The EPA said it has taken significant steps already to reduce emissions in an industrial corridor of Louisiana, commonly referred to as Cancerelli. We're learning more about legalized euthanasia in Holland. Correspondent Vicki Barker. In the 10 years up to 2021, nearly 60,000 people in the Netherlands chose legal euthanasia. And though many were old and infirm or had terminal conditions, Dutch researchers say five people under 30 cited autism as their reason for choosing doctor-assisted suicide. Some experts say that stretches the limit of what the law intended. A new survey finds 20-somethings are swimming in debt. Lending trees says in the past two years, Gen Zers have nearly tripled what they owe overall. That's 99% more than any other generation. The bright side, if they make regular payments, they're raising their credit scores to qualify for more loans at lower rates. Dow down 119. This is CBS News. 
Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair, Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A new interim superintendent of schools in East Hampton is on board. Maureen Binienda accepted the job and will begin this week after signing a one-year deal for $157,000. The hiring comes after several controversial months following the withdrawal of an offer to Vito Perone and the withdrawal of Erica Viginsky-Stark over alleged anti-trans social media posts. The search for a permanent superintendent will begin again before the end of the year. Cal's Building Supply and a solar development company called Amp Energy are suing the town of Shutesbury for the right to build a large-scale solar array exempted from the town's bylaws regulating such developments. Sharon Weisenbaum, a member of the citizens' advocacy group Smart Solar Shutesbury, spoke out in an informational meeting. But don't we need large-scale solar development to reach state climate goals? We do need solar but we need it cited in appropriate places. Sacrificing forest lands for solar is absolutely inappropriate. The activist group is primarily concerned with the clear-cutting of forests and how it would affect the town's water supply, as well as the threat of other environmental impacts like chemical leaching. The state fire marshal is investigating the cause of a fire that left several people homeless. The fire began at a multifamily home on Phillips Avenue in Westfield around 3 p.m. yesterday. When crews arrived, the home, which accommodated four families, was fully engulfed in flames. All occupants of the home managed to exit safely and without any injuries. Mixture of sun and clouds today, warm, humid, a high of 78 to 82. Be ready for scattered afternoon thunderstorms. Chance for a shower this evening as well, then partial clearing and patchy fog overnight, a low of 58 to 64. Then for tomorrow, sun cloud mix, chance of showers in the afternoon, a high of 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis on 101.5 WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And this is the segment that we have weekly called, it's at a different time than it customarily is, but it is Cool Films with Larry Hott and really a very special, talented guest. Emmy Award-winning Florence-based filmmaker Larry Hott. Thank you. Today is Cool Photos with Larry Hott because I am talking with Rebecca Mosman, known as Becky Mosman. Becky has received recently a John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Award. Um, I've tried to get this and haven't gotten it, 
so I'm jealous and envious at the same time. Um, she's also received the Joel Conamo Grant bin. It featured in many magazines, including one called Ain't Bad Magazine, which I've never heard of, but I just love the title. Good morning, Becky. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Excited. Uh, the way I know Becky is through the Grand Canyon. <laughs> where I met her brother, Matt Biddle, who was a guide on the trip I took recently. And uh, we started talking about our jobs, and he mentioned that his sister was a photographer and that she'd won a Guggenheim and that she had attended Maine Media, which is a place in Maine that I'm on the board of, uh, know quite a bit about, taught there for many years. It's a small canyon. <laughs> so that's how I got to know Becky. Um, Becky, your website, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, is Mosman Photography, Mosman Studios. What is it exactly? Mosman Studios. MosmanStudios.com. And if you can get to a computer, uh, pull it up. Um, you are an extraordinary photographer. Uh, you tell me about the application you made to the Guggenheim. What was it about? What is the what are the kind of pictures you submit you submitted, and why did you choose that subject? Well, um, the the photos that I submitted is my Irish Travelers series. Um, I've been working on this project, the series, since uh, I think around 2017, um, and they are just an extraordinarily interesting people. And uh, I had submitted to the Guggenheim this project so that I could go back and continue to document their lives and their uh, traditions and customs. Um, and so this gives me that great opportunity to do that. I'm really excited to be able to go back. I haven't been back since before COVID, uh, around 2019. So really excited to get back there and see some of the same people, meet new people, and continue to document their lives. I don't think everybody is familiar with the term Irish travelers. I've heard the word tinkers. Uh, we have the, the word gypsies, which people don't use much anymore. But what, what are Irish travelers? How do you distinguish them from other people in Ireland? Well, um, so people do call them gypsies, but the difference is that the travelers are actually just Scottish and Irish in, in origin, so in ethnicity. So gypsies can kind of be a general term for anybody nomadic, um, but the Irish travelers obviously are, you know, very specific to um, Ireland and Scotland. So uh, that's pretty much the difference. Uh, just their nomadic life makes them very unique. Uh, they have a very long history. Uh, and, and some are more nomadic than others. Some are more settled uh, in their halting sites and illegal encampments and things like that. So I'm looking at the photographs now in the Irish Travelers section of MosmanStudios.com. And there seems to be a thread that goes among or through these photographs. I'm seeing something, but I'd like to hear what you think is the thread that connects all these photographs. Well... You know, it's, it's, I guess if I'm looking at it from an outside perspective, I, I think, you know, because sometimes I don't necessarily intend a thread when I'm taking the photographs, but when I, if I'm looking at it from a different viewer, I think the word I could use might be connection. I really feel like there is a, an intimate connection that I try to make with these people when I take their portraits, you know, try to get something deeper out of them. Um, and I think that them being so open, and, and sometimes it's just them interest being interested in, you know, oh, I come from America, so they're interested in hearing more about that. Um, but maybe, you know, I just think connection. I think I'm able to connect with these people, and that comes across in my, my portraitures of them. I want to talk about one 
particular photograph. And if you're on a phone, it's the fifth or sixth one down in the Irish Travelers, uh, probably the same on the website. It's of three boys, and they are posed as if they're kind of tough. And there are three different sizes, as tall, medium, and short. Um, and I, if you know the one I'm talking about, could you just describe how you pose this, how you got the look you got? These, they've got this tough scowl on their face, but they're, they're children. And they appear like they're pretending to be tough. And one of the things I noticed about your photographs is they're both soft and hard at the same time. They are soft in that there is a, uh, a, a soft uh, background, a blurred depth of field, they're, but their faces are in focus. But they also feel like the people look hard, look like they've hard, had hard lives, but you are intimate with them at the same time. And I think that's the charm of your photographs, if that's the right word. Um, and there's so much talent in them, but I would, it's hard to describe why your photographs are so wonderful. Now, that's might be putting you on the spot, but if you could at least talk about that particular photograph and why you think that's a good one. Yeah, that photograph, I know exactly which one you're talking about, is actually called Three Tough Boys, because I that was just the best way to describe all three of them. So that was that was really good. Um, this was taken at the Ballinasloe Horse Fair, which is an annual horse fair that happens um, in October. And um, these three boys were just running around. They had these toy guns. They were just, you know, doing boy stuff. And um, they, I asked them, you know, I engaged with them and talked to them a little bit. And I have three boys, so I, I kind of understand boys. And um, I said, hey, just, just pause for a minute. Just pause. And I want to take your picture. And, of course, they did all this posturing. And, um, and it was in front of a horse trailer, which was, you know, everywhere. So that was a great backdrop, you know, not a lot of busyness. So you could, you could find a horse trailer and put people in front of it. And it was a perfect backstage. Um, and, uh, so, you know, they basically posed themselves. I, I try not to pose people because I don't want it to look contrived or unnatural. So that, what they gave me in that photo was exactly their, just their posturing, their look to me. And I think it was, you know, they wanted to look tough um, and they wanted to look, you know, older than they were. Uh, so yeah, it was just, That's it was a, a great- a bit different than the uh, we feel now. Um, I think all of us in this room want to look younger than we are. Uh, <laughs> Buzz uh, has a question, follow-up question for you. Yes, Becky Mosman. Uh, so most of your photographs are in black and white, sort of had that grayscale background. A, a lot of photographers use a softer kind of uh, CPI, I think it's called, that reddish-brown um, kind of photographs that sort of um, uh, evokes an older time, a former time. Why do you choose black and white? Well, you know, I started with color. Um, when I first started, you know, taking photographs, I, I experimented with all kinds of different things. Um, and all kinds kinds of different types of photography, like landscapes and just objects, you know, still life and so forth. And I, I did color photography. Um, I think I just studied a lot of photographers, looked at a lot of work, and I really black and white just jumped out at me as being emotional, um, deeper. And I started to just experiment with it, and I really liked the results that I got. I didn't get distracted by the color. I thought it was a little bit more raw. Um, I just thought the emotions that I was trying to go for were just were better evoked through the black and white. I just I feel that there's a richness to it, and um, 
part of that was just, as I said, looking at my other, you know, other documentary photographers, famous ones that have done black and white and thought, yeah, that's really, that really moves me. Um, and so I just, that's why I've stuck with it. I just, I really like it. You know, I'm a documentary filmmaker and I'm always struck by the word documentary photography. Uh, and you studied documentary photography. I don't know if you took those courses at Maine Media, but can you tell me what is documentary photography? Is it what Jacob Rees did? Uh, is it something that is impossible to define? What What is your definition of what you do? So I, I think in my definition, it's telling a story, you know, telling a story about a, pe a, a particular type of people, person, um, way of life, um, cause, it could be anything, but I think it's it's basically a series of photographs that tell a story. And, you know, um, in film, you can have, and I mean, you know this, Larry, because, you know, you're a documentary filmmaker, but you can tell the story through um, motion graphics and narration, and all of that adds to the, the, the story that you're trying to convey. And in documentary photography, I think it's tricky in that you want to give enough imagery to tell a story but you don't want to overload people with too much so you got to you got to be very you know tight with your edit enough to be able to tell people what it is you're trying to tell them um so i think it's just about telling stories and it could be as is you know an elaborate story it could just be about one person one person's story but that's that to me is what documentary photography is I'm curious about how you learned your craft. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what your background is, what your day job is, and then uh, I, I couch this question um, in, a, in a way that you hear frequently, which is that everybody has a camera now, and the yeah. quality of cell phone cameras is very high, and everybody thinks that they can take a great picture. But yours really stand out. So what is your background, and how did you learn your craft? Uh, what did you? What did people teach you? Is there something that you can, can you be taught to be a better photographer? I think you can. I think you can. Um, so my background is art. I mean, I went to Virginia Tech undergrad, uh, majored in art, not engineering, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, with a focus on graphic design. And then uh, after graduating, I worked in the field for a few years and then decided that I really wanted to go back and get my master's of fine arts. Uh, so I went back to uh, RIT, got two years, uh, did my MFA, again, my focus in graphic design. Um, and mainly that was because I wanted to, I knew I wanted to go into the arts, but I didn't want to be a starving artist. And so I was trying to come up with something I could do that would, you know, I could support myself with. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to like graphic design, but I loved it. And um, so that's my background. And, and then I had taken a workshop at Maine Media. Um, it was called an advanced Photoshop workshop, my very first one, um, advanced Photoshop techniques. We should say that Maine Media is a school on the Maine coast in, in Rockport. Um, full disclosure, I'm on the board and I frequently teach there. Uh, well, go ahead. Go ahead, Becky. So yeah, I thought I was signing up for a software class, and um, it was <laughs> it was a little bit, but you know everybody in there was like a professional photographer, and I had never even picked up a camera. You know, I I didn't know how to take it off the automatic settings, so I was really thrown into just. Wait this. a second, you didn't know how to use a basic camera when you took this course? Yeah, no, I did not. <laughs> so, <laughs> how long how long ago was that? This was. Uh, let's see, this must have been about 
11 years ago wow. or so. Okay. Wow. And, yeah, I know this is really pretty impressive. Okay, I, you had a, we're telling a good story, so go ahead, Becky. So anyway, the week was just crazy for me. I mean, I knew the software part of everything, but I didn't realize you were going to have to go take our own pictures and then have to work on our pictures in the software. So um, I had the best people in my class. I mean, we all bonded, as as I have with many of those workshop classes. Um, and they would show me how to set up my camera, and I was trying to do this quick you know, crash course. Anyway, all that to be said, by the end of the week, I something had just clicked in me. I, I just knew that I had found my passion. And I just, after, and I remember telling my teacher, I said, I don't know where I'm going to go with this, but something has changed in me. This is really, really exciting for me. And um, so ever since that first workshop, I just started taking as many as I could. I, my next one was intro to digital photography because I needed to learn how to use my camera. <laughs> And uh, and then after that, I just started taking classes and uh, that would really perfect my craft. And I started to um, study a lot of photographers and just learn as much as I could. I think whenever you take any type of workshop or work with other photographers, you pick up a lot of their style and their technique, and you can take a little bit of that with you. Okay, I'm going to stop there because we're going to take a break. But we've been speaking with Becky Mosman. If you want to see her work, go to mosmanstudios.com, and we'll be right back after this break. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. Are you or someone you care about struggling with mental health or substance use? The Behavioral Health Helpline is here for you. Call 833-773-2445 and we'll work with you to find the help you need. Free, open 24-7 and available in over 200 languages. No insurance needed. 833-773-2445. A service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts operated by the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website 
at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. Larry Hott is continuing his conversation with documentary photographer Becky Moseman. Uh, it's really a fascinating conversation, Larry. Uh, thanks, Buzz. Um, well, in the break, we've been talking about this question that comes up, I think, with a lot of photographers and filmmakers is, do you know when you've taken a shot, if it's a good one, or does that come later? And in the process of choosing, editing, cropping, etc., what's the most important What's the most important part of that technique for you? And I want to remind the listeners that we're talking with Becky Mosman, an extraordinary photographer, and you can look at her photos at mosmanstudios.com. Go ahead, Becky. Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, sometimes, I guess the answer is a little bit of both. I mean, sometimes I've taken a photo and uh, I don't look at it, you know, I don't look at the back of my camera right away unless I'm looking to just make sure that it's, you know, in, in focus. Um, but later I'll go through it. And I have found that some of the photographs that I sort of looked at and, and discarded, I've gone back a couple months later and seen them, and they've been some of my most successful photos. So I think that there's, it's great to put a little distance between uh, the moment in which you take it and then re when you revisit it because sometimes you're so in love with that moment Maybe you had to work hard with the person or you got to know the person in a personal way and you take the photograph and you, you think you're gonna love it and Then you know it, it doesn't come out quite the way you wanted it to and then but later you you'd rediscover or the opposite You think you got a great photograph or you didn't get a great photograph Excuse me, and then you go back later and say oh my gosh This is so much better than I thought because there's just a little bit of distance between the time that you took it and the time that you react to it. Um, on the other hand, I've had a couple situations. Uh, one particular photograph of a, I can point out, was a boy with a toy gun that was looking at me through a car window. And um, I, he had just spontaneously run out. I was in the car and put himself in the window and held up his toy gun. And, and I picked up my camera because I'm thinking this is a great moment, but he's going to move. You know, this is a fleeting moment. And he just paused. It's like he just stood still for, and gave me the most beautiful picture. He must have stood that way, it felt like, for minutes. It was probably just 30 seconds or so. So he allowed me to take that picture of him like he was, you know, just frozen. And so I knew in that situation that that picture I was going to hope was going to come out okay. That so, picture has a natural frame because he's in the window and the window gives the, you that uh, sense of a picture already. I mean, you're looking through any uh, car window, it's already framed, particularly the side windows. Uh, and there's a couple of other pictures, in fact, cars. In fact, I've noticed that you have a lot of automobile pictures, either in the background or people sitting in the window. Is it because of the frame or is that just a coincidence? You know, I think it is coincidence, but I think I am drawn to the frame. Um, it's funny because one of my photographer friends always says, you're the car photographer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, so I'm not the only one who noticed that. Uh, I want to ask you about some of your other photographs that jump out at me. Uh, on the website, uh, you have these Mississippi Delta photographs. Um, I think it's under the, what do you call that section? It is in the, uh, the land where the roots grow deep. Is that what it is? Yes, uh, the land yeah. where the roots grow deep. So I'm looking at those pictures, and all of a sudden I just flashed on uh, Walker Evans and James Agee, 
Uh, before I mentioned uh, Jacob Reese, who was famous for the photographs in the tenements uh, in the New York City. Do you see yourself uh, as a descendant connected to that school of documentary photography? Gosh, that would be amazing. <laughs> you know, um, I maybe I I don't I don't know that I really see myself belonging to any particular type of you know legacy like that. It would be it's an amazing compliment. Um, I think with the Delta pictures um, have been it's kind of an ongoing project as well, and um, getting down there and just trying to spend as much time with with that in that area with those people as possible has been great. I don't quite have the same. Oh, I think when I'm in Ireland and I'm with the travelers, I spend a lot more time talking to them. And so my photographs are a little bit deeper. Um, but the Delta, we're sort of, uh, I'm moving sort of through the area. So I don't have as much time to invest with the people. And I think you can see a little bit of difference with that with my photographs. Well, what, about, what's, I, what, do you, what is that difference? What can you explain? I, I want to, you know, you just said you talk with people. A lot of photographers and filmmakers say, you know, I don't take out my camera for X weeks or months even until I have gained the trust of people. But you're, what's your opinion about that and how much time do you spend with people before you take out, out the camera and also go back to the question of what's the difference between say the Delta pictures uh, and Mississippi and the pictures of the uh, Irish travelers yeah I agree with you I think it's you know if you whip out your camera right, right away in somebody's face they get to be very um, you know wary of you and wonder you know what your intentions are I think that the travelers were very open ironically because you can't just walk into their communities and start taking their pictures I mean they're a little bit suspicious um, and uh, so you really have to get to know them but once once you do they really open themselves up to you um, and and down in Mississippi same thing you know I wouldn't want to like walk into a family gathering and whip out my camera um, but the people were a little bit more standoffish, even, you know, after talking to them for a while. And I, maybe it's the difference of, um, you know, I'm, I'm not an outsider, really. You know, I'm, I come from, you know, the same country and I'm just down there. It's, a, it's sort of a document of their lives. And, and the mentality is a little different. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on it either as a photographer, the difference between the connection between the two. Um, I've tried to think about that myself. Let me stop you for a second because yeah, uh, Buzz has a question. Actually, I have a question for, for you, Larry, and also for Becky Bozeman. But uh, Larry, how does a documentary, an Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker, how do you choose what photographs to include? Do you have this uh, the big uh, resource that you use? How do you choose these? Well, that's a great question because we use so many photographs in history films. Uh, and like Becky, we are constantly editing as we're looking at them. Um, if I were doing a film about Becky's work, for example, I would have to choose ones that would be work very quickly because when you're making a film, if you leave things on too long, people look away. Uh, and uh, unless you are telling them to stay on, I mean, I've seen that there was a brilliant documentary film uh, came out last year called Three and a Half Minutes, where they looked at the same footage over and over and over again. Um, but it's an editing process, and like Becky said, I mean, you, do you have a reservoir of of, of documentary uh, photographers like Becky. Uh, no, uh, actually, and then there's a question of copyright and using their work. Um, so we frequently we rely on things that are uh, old <laughs> because they're out of copyright. Uh, so Becky, do, do documentary filmmakers contact you? Do you send out information about yourself to those 
filmmakers? How does that happen? Actually, I've never worked with a documentary filmmaker before on anything, so... Well, then maybe the opportunity will <laughs> will come to us. Uh, Bill has a question. Yeah, I, I would be interested to know, you, you won a Guggenheim. This is really prestigious. That's really terrific, and congratulations. I'd like to know a bit about that process and whether it's changed your uh, professional life in any way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it has. It's still relatively new, so it's things are still sort of developing for me. Um, but yeah, it's a huge honor and, um, it's, you know, it's a quite a, it's a quite a process. I mean, I was new to this process and this was my first time applying. Um, and you know, there's recommendation letters, there's essays, uh, there's a project statement breakdown plus the work and so forth. So, and then you got to wait a long time I mean, you get everything in in September and you got to wait until April <laughs> so you're sitting there for six months wondering. Um, but yeah, I, this is, it really has changed in that I've connected with a lot of people that also were uh, 2023 fellow Guggenheim winners and they weren't all photographers. I mean, it's with all these different genres. So, um, you know, I've connected with uh, a, an actor who won an award and a, a woman in philosophy. And, you know, so it's a great community of people. Um, it's, it's just been wonderful. So we're going to close up in a second with uh, Becky Moseman, Rebecca Moseman, whose uh, work can be seen at mosemanstudios.com. Uh, I want to just ask you one more question about your work that's on the website. You have uh, a section on family. Uh, what is it like photographing your own family? Uh, what precautions do you take? Do you, are you too intimate sometimes? Or do you feel this is too close? Uh, how is it different photographing your family than complete strangers? Yeah, so it, it is a little different. I feel like I take more liberties with my own family because they're close to me and they trust me. You know, that trust is already there. Um, and they were really my first series and my first project when I, you know, wanted to get into taking better photographs, um, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to travel to all these places. And because I was, you know, I had three children and a job. So I really turned my camera on them and they were so open um, to it. And a lot of it was collaborative. Um, and uh, now that they've gotten older, they don't like it so much. <laughs> so, you know, it was truly a moment in time. And uh, I'm, I'm so, and they're such a great supporter of my work as well. I mean, it's it's been great. Yeah. Becky, thank you so much for talking with us. You can see her work, Becky Mosman's work at mosmanstudios.com. And I hope everybody can take a chance, take a look at that work. And also, if you're interested, she mentioned Main Media, where she studied and learned her craft. That's uh, mainmedia.edu. Thanks a lot, Becky. Thank you so much. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A new interim superintendent of schools in East Hampton is on board. 
Maureen Binienda accepted the job and will begin this week after signing a one-year deal for $157,000. The hiring comes after several controversial months following the withdrawal of an offer to Vito Perone and the withdrawal of Erica Viginsky-Stark over alleged anti-trans social media posts. The search for a permanent superintendent will begin again before the end of the year. Cal's Building Supply and a solar development company called Amp Energy are suing the town of Shutesbury for the right to build a large-scale solar array, exempted from the town's bylaws regulating such developments. Sharon Weisenbaum, a member of the Citizens Advocacy Group Smart Solar Shutesbury, spoke out in an informational meeting. But don't we need large-scale solar development to reach state climate goals? We do need solar, but we need it sited in appropriate places. Sacrificing forest lands for solar is absolutely inappropriate. The activist group is primarily concerned with the clear-cutting of forests and how it would affect the town's water supply, as well as the threat of other environmental impacts like chemical leaching. The state fire marshal is investigating the cause of a fire that left several people homeless. The fire began at a multifamily home on Phillips Avenue in Westfield around 3 p.m. yesterday. When crews arrived, the home, which accommodated four families, was fully engulfed in flames. All occupants of the home managed to exit safely and without any injuries. Mixture of sun and clouds today, warm, humid, a high of 78 to 82. Be ready for scattered afternoon thunderstorms. Chance for a shower this evening as well, then partial clearing and patchy fog overnight, a low of 58 to 64. And for tomorrow, sun cloud mix, chance of showers in the afternoon, a high of 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis on 101.5 WHMP. In 1967, Judy Collins gave us a remarkable album, Wildflowers. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. On Saturday night, July 1st, Judy Collins takes the stage at Northampton's Academy of Music with the Rasa String Quartet to perform the Wildflowers album. Place around the collars of the blouses of the lady. Judy Collins at the Academy. With the Rasa String Quartet, the chamber folk essence of the Songs of Wildflowers breathe in new ways. Light gets into the corners, and the melodies drink like a beautifully aged wine. Judy Collins performing Wildflowers and other songs from her 60-year career. Get tickets now at the Academy of Music website or box office. Judy Collins with the Rasa String Quartet, Saturday, July 1st, 8 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. 
And welcome back to Talk the Talk. We are going to continue. We are focused on the arts, and in particular the performing arts. There is a just a jewel of a theater um, it, in Chelsea, Massachusetts. In Chelsea, Chester. Massachusetts, Chester. <laughs> I'm looking at the wrong note here. In Chester, Massachusetts, and we have with us co-producing artistic co-artistic director Tara uh, Franklin uh, from Chester Theater. Hello, Tara. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So, um, first of all, tell us about the theater. Tell us how long you've been with the theater. Tell us what people should know about how to get in touch with the theater. <laughs> Absolutely. So, this is um, Chester Theater Company's 34th season. Um, started 34 years ago by Vincent Dowling, who came over from Ireland and was the artistic director at the Abbey Theater uh, and then wanted to start something in Western Massachusetts. So um, we're still going strong. I'm so proud to be the co-producing artistic director with my husband, James Berry. Um, I actually did my first show at Chester in 2016 um, and then, you know, acted in a couple of plays over the next couple of summers. And then uh, in 2019, um, I became the one of the a full-time staff of associate artistic director and director of education um, and kind of went through the pandemic and we did, um, we did shows at Hancock Shaker village. Um, we did a couple of online things. And then now, uh, you know, back in 2022, we came home to our town hall theater, our beloved theater. And, um, and we're so excited to bring this 34th season to our audiences. And people can, can uh, look at, at the website, Chester Theater, that's with yep. an R-E at the end, dot org, chestertheater.org, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you can see what events are happening there, and uh, it's just a fascinating situation you have with the interns that you have there, and, um, and so I, I want to just circle back to what you just said. What, what does the director of education do at Chester Theater? <laughs> so actually, I, I didn't get rid of that title. Um, I don't put it in my... In my uh, in my signature, but um, this is this is part of the theater that is actually uh, something that we can't really produce without um, the intern company. We take seven interns every summer um, from all over the country, um, and they help us out in any capacity that we need them to. We have um, interns in the electrics department, uh, stage management, wardrobe, props, scenic, and then you know, arts administration. So um, it's really a wonderful group that I, I kind of, you know, curate. <laughs> so in March, I start to go through applications and um, do some interviewing, and then I have my company. And so they arrive right as the theater is starting its first rehearsal for the first show. Um, they all live together in one house. Um, they become such a great group together. And um, like I said, we just, we couldn't function without them. <laughs> so, uh, Tara Franklin from the Chester Theater, this is Bill. And I'd like to know about the productions that you'll be doing this summer and what is happening at the Chester Theater now. I should tell you I've been a regular attendee at the Chester Theater for many, many years. My wife and I go regularly, and I have seen just wonderful productions. I love the theater. I love the intimacy, and yet the professionalism and the use of equity actors and 
the way in which you feel like you've just seen a Broadway show, but you got to sit in the first row. And so I want you to know how much I appreciate the theater. And, of course, Daniel Lehu Kramer, who was the artistic director for many, many years, has now stepped aside But in, in favor of you and your husband. But he actually will be producing a show as well this summer. So a fantastic lineup. I'd love to know what, what's going to be at the Chester Theater this summer. Help us out, please. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for all of that. <laughs> I'm so glad that you that you enjoy coming to see us. Um, so we've actually opened our first show called uh, The Making of a Great Moment. Um, we actually have a matinee today, which I will be driving to very shortly. Um, but this is a, a wonderfully um, hilarious and heartwarming production. Uh, it's about two actors who are uh, from the Victoria Canada Bicycle Theatre Company, um, and they are touring across America, performing a pretty long show um, that is called the History, History of Human Achievement, or Great Moments in Human Achievement. There it is. Now, our show is not four hours. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> but they are performing in pieces, you will see. Um, and so they are biking to these kind of terrible venues. Um, we actually catch them in New Hampshire performing at a, um, at a nursing home. Um, they bike 62 to 70 miles every day. They perform a show at night and then they have to camp. So you're, you know, you're experiencing, um, kind of what happens to (laughs) actors who have to work together for a really long time. And then also performing in these suboptimal conditions. Um, it's really a love letter to, to the theater, um, and to why actors do what they do and, you know, what keeps them going. Um, the two actors we have, Bill Bowers and Esther Williamson, are uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, they are hysterical, and uh, they create such a wonderful dynamic uh, between them. Even though it's a two-person show, such an ensemble. Um, and actually, a couple of our interns make a guest, guest appearances in it. So um, it's a really fun show. I would love for people to come see it this weekend. We're closing on Sunday, um, and it's just a wonderful start to our season and a great way for James and I to uh, to put our first you know step forward into uh, into the theater as co-producing artistic directors. It sounds like a play um, within a play. So if people want to get it tickets, is, there's a <laughs> yeah, it's a play within a play within a play. Um, so yeah, we can buy tickets online uh, www.chestertheater.org. Um, it's called the Making of a Great Moment. Uh, you can also call our box office. We're open Tuesday through Friday, uh, eleven to three, and that number is four one three. Uh, three, five, four, seven, 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 one. Um, so we would be overjoyed to welcome anybody into the theater this, uh, this weekend. Um, we knew we do have a one masked performance left, which is Saturday afternoon. Um, otherwise masks, masks are, um, encouraged, but, but not required. Um, and then we're going to be starting our second show, which is guards at the Taj, uh, by Rajiv Joseph. Um, this is a play that James actually saw in uh, Los Angeles when he was on tour uh, at the Geffen Playhouse. Um, it is a stunning play. Uh, I am so thrilled that we are able to produce it. Um, it's about these two young men uh, in Agra back when the Taj Mahal was being built, and they are guarding the Taj as, it, at his, um, as it's kind of finishing up. Um, you get to see the humor and the love between the young men. They've been best friends forever. Um, and then they are asked to do the unthinkable. And the play quickly 
uh, dissolves into um, into just really, really uh, terrible, like violent conditions. Um, but the relationship between the young men um, is is even more heartbreaking because of uh, because of what happens with them. Um, this is a play that I don't know if it gets produced that often. Um, it is definitely going to be one of the most technically ambitious plays that Chester has ever done. Um, and for that, I am, I am so excited to have people see that, to see what we can do with our space. It doesn't have to just be, you know, simple sets and, you know, simple design. This is, this is pretty, like I said, technically ambitious. So, um, we're so who, who designs that, that for you at Chester? So our, our scenic designer for that show is, um, Travis George, who has worked with us a number of times, so he knows the space incredibly well. Um, some people may remember his designs from Mary's Wedding, um, On the Exhale. Uh, he did To the Moon and Back last year, which was a beautiful design. So we're so fortunate to be working with him. But a set design involving the Taj Mahal, that's pretty ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> lots of cool things. Lots of cool things he's working on. Could you tell us a bit about the actors because it's another ensemble apparently two actors are are the primary are the primary uh uh objects or uh of, <laughs> of, of this of the, of attention um but you said there also are interns who have i take walk-on parts I, i'm really interested well, in, in how that yeah, sorry, works the, the interns are actually part of this first show um because it's a play within a play um we have gotten the interns as stage management to kind of come out and be the stage managers. Oh, I see. Um, okay, thank so you. No <laughs> and, that, yeah. and that play is um, called The Making of a Great Moment. The Making of a Great Moment. Yeah, the one that's coming up after um, is uh, Guards at the Taj. And um, we have two actors, one of whom has actually worked with us before. Um, he was in the play Disgraced, which uh, Kristen Vangenhoven directed um, a few years ago. And um, his name is uh, Abuzar Farouk. Uh, and we are also um, welcoming a new uh, a new actor, Rushir uh, Kazanchi, and he is playing um, he is playing one of the men as well. Um, that we found actually Rushir, we do these auditions in New York, kind of open to all professional actors, and we saw him there, and we were like, "That's the guy. He's he's incredible." Uh, and Abuzar is amazing as well. Um, they are creating such an amazing bond in the rehearsal studio. And I can't wait to see what they do when all of this, you know, this amazing technical stuff is, is happening around them. So, so we know that the, the making of a great moment, folks can get tickets and that end that run ends this weekend. How about the guards right. at the Taj? When does that run from and until when? Sure. It runs from June. Um, oh, sorry. July 16th. I mean, oh, now I'm messing up July 6th. Uh, we have our first preview that Thursday afternoon. We open the evening of July 7th, but both are available uh, in terms of buying tickets. And then it runs through uh, Sunday, July 16th. They both sound wonderful. We're going to take a break. We are talking to Tara uh, Franklin, who is the co-production and artistic director. And she ha- wears a number of other hats, including the education director at uh, the Chester Theater. That's theater with an R-E at the end, chestertheater.org. We'll be right back and continue our conversation with Tara right after this.
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back talking uh, about a very special theater that we have in this region, um, the Chester Theater. And we're talking with Tara Franklin, who is the co-artistic director and co-production uh, director. And so, Tara, tell where is Chester Theater and, and uh, um, what do people do? What, what options do they have about what to do, where to eat in Chester when they come to your theater? Sure, sure. So um, we are not that far from Jacob's Pillow or the Dreamway Lodge. Um, so if you kind of keep going on Route 20, you're going to come right into the middle of our town. Um, the town hall is right off of Route 20. And, um, yeah, it's a great little spot. There is There are a couple restaurants. Um, well, the Dreamway is, has opened again, but also I want to um, say that Chester Common Table, um, right on Main Street and a walking distance from the theater, um, has lunch and dinner options. Um, it's a great place. You can sit outside, um, and the staff and the food are wonderful. I second um, that. It's a great trip up to the Chester Theater. You can have a great dinner. You yeah. go to the theater. It's beautiful. The theater is beautiful. So anyway, I, I, I absolutely second all that. That's good. And, <laughs> and, and so I learned about, um, it, uh, by way of disclosure, I have never been there. I've been to the Dream Away. I've been to Jacob Pillow many times, and shame on me, I haven't been to Chester Theater, but now I will. What is Unreconciled? What is that all about? So uh, Unreconciled is our special event this summer. We usually have uh, a week where we're not doing any um, performances at night, um, and so we like to offer um, a little something different in the middle of the season. Um, 
sometimes it could be like an intern show. Some, sometimes we, we did something called Gem of the Valley a few years ago. Um, this is a workshop production, although we'll feel very much like a, um, like, you know, a finished product. Um, this show is by uh, Jay Sefton, and uh, he actually co-wrote it with Mark Basquil. Basquil. And uh, James is actually directing this one. Um, this is a, kind of an autobiographical story of, um, of Jay go, growing up in um, the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, he plays 20 different characters in it. Um, he, is, he is an actor um, and has done a lot of theater. Actually, people may have just seen him in the Wham! and BTG co-production of What the Constitution Means to Me. Uh, he played the Legionnaire. Um, it's a beautiful show, and while the subject matter, matter is difficult, uh, he handles it in such a graceful and, at times, humorous way. Um, and so it's, a, it's just a wonderful, it's a 75-minute kind of story of a, a boy who has, um, who has grown up and has struggled with things that happened in his past and how he's, um, and how he's worked to move through them in a in a healthy way um jay is a wonderful actor and a wonderful writer um he and james have been working on this piece since last fall and um we're really excited to bring it to audiences bill you told us during the break uh about the trips fundraiser that the chester Theater. yeah uh, one of the things i haven't done with chester theater that i think about uh many times when i go uh, when i hear about it from the uh producers and the directors is the trip that you take that you organize and take to london for theater Mm -hmm. you want to tell our listeners about that yeah absolutely actually we had we went to london this past march the one that we have upcoming in october we're actually taking a trip to dublin um we'll be there for eight days and um we'll be participating in the dublin theater festival so seeing a bunch of shows all over the city um, and we have nonstop flights from Bradley to, uh, to Dublin, which is kind of fun. Um, we haven't been to Dublin since 2014 as a theater. And, um, it's a really nice way to honor, uh, to honor, uh, Vincent Dowling, who, um, you know, of course came from there. So it's, we feel really great about being able to go back over there and, and see some plays in, in Dublin. Um, and then in March, we always take a trip to London. Uh, we see five amazing shows. Um, we stay at the um, Royal Lancaster Hotel, um, and we have talkbacks every morning, which is kind of our signature, our signature thing at Chester. Um, and our travelers this past March, all 40 of them, um, we had a great time. And it was really fun to get back to traveling with um, with the theater. So it's so much fun. Um, theater in London is just so fantastic. So <laughs> we are um, talking about the Chester Theater dot org. You can get tickets for the Making of a Great Moment, which is running until July second. You can also um, uh, get tickets for what begins on July sixth, which is the Guards at the Taj. Uh, Tara Franklin, last word about how people can get tickets. Absolutely. Um, visit us on our website, chestertheater.org. That's theater with an R-E. Um, we, you know, buy tickets to we, any of our shows that we have coming up. Um, you can give us a call at the box office Tuesday through Friday, 11 to 3. That number is 413-354-7771. 
And um, and thank and you, Tara. Hey, break a leg. It sounds like just a great lineup for, of events. Uh, yeah, thank you, guys. Our pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember, we're all trying to walk the walk. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Farm.